BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing With Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Executive Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, as we know, both triangles and who's the daddy storylines make the soap world turn. And Days currently has a doozy in place with both with Nicole, Eric, and EJ. Now, Nicole is pregnant, and one of those two lucky gents is the dad. And next week, the DNA results will come in, and we'll find out who it is. Or will we? I mean, this is University Hospital in Salem, the scene of many lab switches, or what have you. Perhaps most famously with candy striper Sammy changing her sister Belle's paternity results. But either way, we can expect some good soapy drama from this tale. Now, we haven't really seen a big EJ Nicole push since he's been back on the canvas, but Dan Furigal is bringing some good shades to his alter ego. And suddenly I feel kind of torn over who I want the dad to be, which is exactly what I'm supposed to be feeling. So well done, Days. I am all in with this group. I have seen some like really impassioned letters in our sound off column from fans on both sides of the equation, if you will, uh, Eric and Nicole fans who feel like they really deserve the chance to have a baby of their own and EJ and Nicole fans who feel just as strongly that the baby should be theirs. Uh, However it shakes out, I think it was just really smart of the show to tap into these established fan bases for both of those couplings with this twist. Paternity test results were also a key story point this week on GH where Three years after the show first hinted that Curtis could be Trina's bio dad, uh, they got DNA confirmation of that fact, which led to an absolutely heartbreaking reaction from Taggart, who raised Trina as his own. And uh, I am confident will you know, continue to love her as such, regardless of whether they are related by blood. But shout out to Rael Andrews for how terrific his work was when Taggart broke down in the hospital elevator after putting on a brave face for Trina. Uh, we're used to seeing Taggart as really stoic, which I think made his devastation just that much more painful to watch. And I actually spoke to Rael recently, and he has even more material coming up that dives into this. So we, we all need to keep our tissues handy is what I'm getting at. In other uh, Ashford slash Robertson slash Taggart news, Gavin Houston's return as Zeke takes place this coming week. And in the new issue, we have a feature interview with Tabiana Ali, who plays Trina, and Nicholas Chavez, who plays Spencer, about their mega popular Sprina pairing. 
And I may be biased because I conducted and wrote the interview, but I think it's a great read. Oh, it definitely is. And Sprina fans should run, not walk to the newsstand to read it. Now, Mara, you and I have many shared experiences here, but one of them is in terms of shows we've covered. So you are currently responsible for all things General Hospital in the magazine, which I did in the mid-90s, but you were formerly the All My Children editor, something I also did in the mid-90s. Now, my association, with both shows goes back to the early 80s and to say I love them both would be an understatement. I was completely hooked in by Greg and Jenny and I also loved Jesse and Angie. I love Jesse and Jenny's friendship. I loved Cliff and Nina, Palmer, Phoebe, Wallingford. I mean, the list goes on. It was my absolute like favorite along with GH. So it was one of my great delights here to be the All My Children show editor at the time when Haley and Matteo first got together, as well as Noah and Julia, not to mention when Michael Knight returned as Ted Orsini. I remember they did like a screening of the episode at an actual movie theater. I mean, I have so many great memories of the show and covering it, and I know that you do too. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I started watching All My Children in the late 19th 80s, I was all about Nico and Cecily and Tan and Dixie. And covering it was just such a joy. You know, I'm so grateful. Uh, I had the opportunity to interview amazing, legendary actors on that show who are no longer with us, like David Canary, Adam Stewart, and uh, James Mitchell, Palmer. And, and I, I had experiences that I look back on and sort of pinch myself about, like attending the wedding of Jack and Erica, uh, you know, which was shot on location in Florida. And seeing Celine Dion perform live in the All My Children studio, like I, I'm just, you know, I'm so lucky that some of the actors that I worked with at the time are still in my life, you know, some as friends, some as colleagues, because as the GH editor, I go back years and years with Fanola Hughes, who was playing Anna on All My Children when I was covering it, uh, with Cameron Matheson, ex Ryan, who was GH's Drew, uh, Michael Knight, Martin, who was AMC's Tad. You know, when the show was canceled, I was really crushed for a lot of reasons. And I really mourned not only the show itself, but the regularity with which I was able to interact with the people who worked there because they were they were just such a wonderful bunch of people. Well, they certainly were. And I know that we are both so happy to have one of those wonderful people as our guest today. It's Jill Larson, who played Opal Gardner from 1989 through the end of its run. So let's see how she's doing today. Hi, Jill. Hello. How are you, Steph? Good. How are you? Good. Good. I'm so happy to talk to you today. It's been a minute. Thank you. I'm very excited as well to talk to you and tomorrow. It's uh, it's a great treat. So <laughs> well. For us too. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so we're going to go back to the beginning. You hail from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and amazingly enough, actually went to a rival high school of Dorothy Lyman, who originated the role of Opal on All My Children. But first, tell us how your own interest in performing developed. Um, I, you know, I've just kind of always done it. I, I can remember when I was about, uh, I don't know, five or six, and I was at a friend's house and we built a tent through their whole living room. And then we made tickets to sell to everybody around and we got everybody there to watch the show. And then we realized we hadn't really made a show. What are we going to do now? But uh, so I guess it's always kind of been in my DNA. And uh, I, I worked professionally for the first time when I was, uh, I think, 11 at a summer stock theater that uh, is one of the oldest in the country and is still is still around. And um, it was an Agatha Christie mystery. And 
I um, I was the only child in the cast, but it was it was so exciting to be around these professional actors, and a couple of them were from New York. One was on Playhouse ninety, and uh, so it, it was you know it, it it was just something that uh, that I knew even then I would be doing. So um, so yeah, that's how I I guess I was always interested, is what I mean to say. So. So you you started your higher education at the University of Minnesota, but you finished it at Hunter College in New right. York. Right. And if I have this right, you lived abroad in between. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, okay. So your time abroad included no no high amounts of glamour here, working as a model in Paris. But what yes. what originally took you to Europe? Well, I'll tell you the abbreviated um, version as best I can. Um, I had just moved to New York and I had a job as a receptionist in a little PR firm. And um, my mother called and said, you know, um, Gretchen was my younger sister. She had just graduated high school and had been saving money to go to Europe with her best friend who was um, from Norway and their family had immigrated, you know, when they were young. Uh, and so they had been saving money since they were kindergarten to go to Norway when they graduated. Now they've graduated. And my mother learns that this other little girl's mother is just assuming they're going to go and live on the family farm in Norway for the summer. And my mother thought, well, that's not what I had in mind. And, uh, you know, she said, I, you know, hell, I got a farm she can sit on right here. So, <laughs> so she called me and said, we've I've got these tickets and we've arranged for a, a to buy a, a Volkswagen, because at that time you could buy a Volkswagen, pick it up at the factory, drive it all through Europe and they would ship it back to uh, the United States. So it was kind of, I mean, there was a moment when I thought, but my my acting, I just got here. And uh, my mother said, well, I think New York will be there in eight weeks, you know. <laughs> so we went and I got there and I, I really had not, I'd really not been out of Minnesota to any great degree. And so to get to Europe, it was like my mind was literally blown wide open and within about a week I said to my sister we can't we can't see Europe in eight weeks we have to stay at least until Christmas and um she uh was sort of bug-eyed and astonished and wondered how we were going to do that and so we went about looking for ways that we could get jobs which was a total folly (laughs) uh and then um we, uh, when we were in Spain, we learned from some other, uh, you know, kids that were traveling around Europe at the time that when you got to Paris, you could be an au pair. And so we thought, okay, that's our answer. That's how we can stay on. We can be au pairs. And, but in the meantime, on the first day of um, our arrival in Germany, um, we finally got to the youth hostel where we were going to be staying. And basically I met this French guy who I ended up marrying. So um, it was quite a sort of a soap opera story. Wow. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, that was a very romantic period. But, um, but um, so anyway, I was an au pair for a while. And then some catastrophe, poor pitiful Pearl incident happened. And my boyfriend, who was a law student and um, 
sold jeans at a store on the weekend, which was owned by a guy that owned a model agency. So that's how that happened. He took me there. And, uh, and so I started working and it, you know, so much in life, I think has to do with timing. And this was a moment in time where to be an American in Paris was still something of a novelty. And the it was a cottage industry. It's not like here in New York, you know, where it's high stakes, big corporate industry. So so I was able to, yeah, start working pretty quickly. And uh, and, you know, my mother has a whole whole huge newspaper carton of newspaper clippings and stuff like that from uh, from all the magazines and stuff I worked on. So, wow. That was a um, great time. Did you have any gig that was particularly memorable during modeling? Well, um, I, I had a few very nice covers. You know, my 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 first or second job was the cover on. Um, a magazine called Vingt-Ans, which was like our 17 magazine, which I don't think exists anymore. And um, I had some really nice trips as a result, uh, you know, Morocco and riding camels in the desert. And because those kinds of, you know, they're always looking for the most exotic um, sort of uh, place for you to go. I worked in Germany a lot. And um, so there were there were just wonderful experiences. I will say probably the highlights of my time there was I, I got to do a couple of movies, um, one with a French director who was very famous at the time, René Clément, and um, it was starring um, Frank Langella and Faye Dunaway. And I played their Swedish babysitter. And the, the, the director didn't speak any English, so he didn't know how my Swedish accent was. And fortunately, I had a roommate who was Swedish. So I I learned the lines by rote with, you know, hearing the sound of her accent. And then, of course, I got to the set that day and they completely rewritten the role. So um, so I was a little stressed by that. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, so that was a great experience, even though Frank Langella says it's probably the worst movie he ever made. <laughs> <laughs> Claim to fame. That's right. It was very exciting for me, nonetheless. And then I did another one with a French, um, another very famous French filmmaker with uh, Jean Moreau, who was a a huge movie star at that time. Uh, I don't know that people, you know, the millennials or Gen Xers would recognize that name, but that, again, was, you know, uh, an amazing opportunity. So, uh, so, yeah. So that so, was my time there. Given how swimmingly it seems like things were going, how did you end up back in New York? I think I just was homesick. I just uh, I just wanted to be someplace. I mean, I spoke quite good French by then. And I, yeah, I mean, I liked it there well enough, but I, I just wanted to kind of be with my own tribe and be able to make a joke that people would understand. And just those simple things that you share with people that you have some kind of a history with. It's tiring. And and it made me very sympathetic to immigrants. Um, It's it's very tiring to be the odd man out and to always be trying to understand or catch up or it's it's tiring, you know. So um, I was ready to come home. And my then boyfriend was 
very excited about moving to New York. And so we came back and got married in Minnesota and then then came to New York. Wow. Well, you also had a life chapter performing in nightclubs as a singer as part of a group called Just Us. So oh where my God, and you when... guys really have done your research. <laughs> well, where and when did that fit in? <laughs> that was before I moved to New York. <laughs> I was I was living in Minneapolis and um my roommate and I and our boyfriends actually um, started this singing group and um, and uh, a, a, um, a manufacturer kind of a entrepreneur. He he sold Talon zippers. Uh, was in New York doing business, and I guess somebody brought him to our club that night for dinner, and um, he brought us to New York and uh, and had us do a, a big industrial show down in in South Carolina, uh, you know, to sing about zippers and <laughs> <laughs> that old but, zipper song. Yeah, that's right. And it, it was a, it was a thrilling opportunity for someone who's really, you know, not passionate gonna... about zippers as you are. That's right. <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, so anyway, yeah. And, um, that really, that that really, you know, enforced and established in me that I was going to get to New York come hell or high water, and uh, so so I went back to Minneapolis and whatever, and then came back to New York by myself, and uh, and then my mother called. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, that's how that chapter went, and then mm-hmm. my husband and I moved to New York, and. Um, he was looking for a job and um i was i i was kind of doing some modeling here but my heart wasn't really in it and um like i said it was so it was so much more sort of competitive and serious and it was very playful and very relaxed in france and uh so um so at one point I just thought, I, I want to go back to school. I, I can't because I was trying to start acting, but I, I just had a very hard time. I couldn't. I, I finally got an, a, 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 an agent and then the agent died. And I finally got um, a, a summer stock uh, production of Sweet Charity. And like three weeks before I was supposed to leave, the barn burned down, you know, oh, so all of these sort of signs that eh, this isn't going to work out for you. And, um, and yet I, I just was so um, possessed, I guess that mm-hmm. I kept, uh, I kept at it. And, but then at one point it just was, it just was so hard. I, I thought, no, I, I can't do this. I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to finish my schooling and I'm going to, I'm going to be a businesswoman. I'm going to get a degree in um, economics. And so I, I started school and I took a course in economics and I was doing a minor in French. And one day in the middle of the class, in front of everyone, the teacher looked at me <laughs> and she said, Madame Goldra, why are you studying economics? She said, you have far too much personality to be studying economics. It's a very dull field. She said, my son study economics. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> and I thought, wow, if this woman who hardly knows me 
is giving me this um, advice I should listen, you know. So, so I got a degree instead. I switched to communications and I was going to do, you know, theater management or stuff like that. And I interned at uh, the Schubert Organization for a year. And I interned at uh, WNET. At that time, they had this um, American Playhouse where they did film productions of various plays. So those were wonderful experiences. But then I had like two more classes that were I could be electives. And so I thought, oh, I'll just take a directing class. Oh, that'd just be fun. And um, of course, I just got so obsessed with it. My husband said, you have a passion. And so few people have a passion. Why are you trying to deny it? You know, you should honor that. And uh, that was such a wonderful, wonderful sort of direction indicator he offered me, you know. So mm-hmm. so anyway, I came out of there and I thought, well, I have to go to a school where the teachers are working in, in the business. And that's the way I'll find my way in. And, and that's what happened. So, wow. so uh, yeah, it's a, a, a circuitous route, but um but the right one for me, I guess. Absolutely. It has to be because it's what it was. (laughs) Exactly. All right. Well, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but in 1987, you appeared uh, in the Lincoln Theater Center's production of Death and the King's Horsemen, appearing alphabetically in the cast just before a pre-Coming to America, pre-ER, Eric LaSalle. Right. And I looked at the playbill for this show. And in your bio, Jill, you noted two television credits as the world turns and the Dave Letterman show. So what did you do on Letterman? (laughs) Well, uh, let's see. Uh, Before 1987, like 1982, maybe, um, some friends of mine had started a comedy sketch review. They were, four of them were writers. And one of them um, is Winnie Holtzman, who wrote Wicked. So she went on to be, and and the another one, David Babcock, was a, a huge um, TV writer in Hollywood for a long time. Um, but the other woman in the group um, was leaving the group, and they asked me to step in, so I did. And um, so we were doing this show in New York, and um, I'm trying to sort of... Can I don't know, make this a little simpler story, but um, it just so happened that the the guy who was accompanying us uh, in the musical numbers was dating the the daughter of the manager of Woody Allen and uh, David Letterman. So he suggested that David have us on as guests. And so we were on the show and we did, I don't know, three sketches or something, maybe. And uh, David had a friend who was writing for the show at the time. And evidently, after we were on the show, Letterman said to David's friend or somebody said, uh, no, no more comedy groups on the show. <laughs> so so um, but it was a big, a big time for us. It was very exciting. You can for imagine. sure. That's amazing. Um, Now, a year before that 1987 production, you made your daytime debut as TV journalist Judith Clayton on As the World Turns. So was that your first time trying out for a soap? And do you recall auditioning for it? 
Uh, yes, I remember vividly. It was Phyllis Cash who was the uh, casting director. God love her. And um, um, it, just a tiny sidebar was that by this time I was divorced and I had um, I, I found a, a little cottage in the country that I just thought had to be mine. But I was working, you know, in an off off Broadway show for $100 a week and there was no way I was going to be buying it. So I, I I had a friend who wanted to buy something. So anyway, we decided to buy it together. So I took him out there to look at the house. He decided, okay, yes, let's do it. And the down payment was like $12,000. And we're driving home. And he says to me, well, um, okay, we need $12,000 for this down payment. Now, I have my $6,000, but where are you going to get yours? <laughs> And I just said, I have no idea, but I will have it. And it was within like two or three weeks of that, that Phyllis called me into audition. And it was for two days on As the World Turns. And for whatever reason, they just kept writing this character. And so by the time the day of the closing, which was June 6, 1986, um, I was on set for some wedding or some big thing. And I had to leave early to go to the closing and I had my money. So That's uh, it was just like that was all meant to be kind of, you know. That's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Is that like the first soap audition you had done? Uh, well, actually, no, I had done I had done one day on all my children prior to that. I mean, quite a bit earlier. I played Natalie's abortion clinic nurse. Isn't that something? Yes. It's just uh, really, uh, I mean, astounding to me now. But so that had to have been, that might have been, well, no, it must have been the early 80s. I think, I think probably circa 85, don't quote me, but you know, I'm going to follow up with you, Jill, and let you know. Uh -huh. Yeah, well, that's interesting. <laughs> and uh, I was very glad to be there because that's my, that was my only time, I'm pretty sure, this was before the more sophisticated editing equipment technology, and so we taped the show in order, and um so that was really an interesting experience for me to, uh, you know, you do you do the first scene and you do up and then the stop and then they go to another set and another set and another set come back around to you and then you pick up mid word and and keep going. And um, I'm very glad that I had the opportunity to experience that because, of course, uh, the uh, the methods of, of shooting a soap now are so different. So it was a, a wonderful experience for me to be able to be on As the World Turns for any number of reasons. Um, but one was that Julianne Moore was in prison at the time and I got to interview her, of course. And I was a very snarky uh, interviewer. And so um, that was that was really fun. I mean, she wasn't the Julianne Moore that we know now, but she was still, of course, a marvelous actress and and really fun to work with. So, so mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I did that. And then, then um, I did a summer stock production that had Louise Sorrell in the cast. Oh, very and nice. We up in Vermont. And she was dating Paul Rausch and he invited the whole cast over for a barbecue and we had a lovely evening 
And then not long after we got back to New York, he called me in to audition for As the World, uh, um, One Life to Live. Amazing. And uh, so, so that was a big deal. And although I didn't realize how big a deal it was because um, Athel Fugard, who you may or may not know, is a very famous South African playwright. And he, I adored him already. I'd already seen him in his play that he was acting in with uh, Kathy Bates, um, you know, previously. And um, he played my father. And uh, so anyway, he was a, a sea captain and we lived in a lighthouse and we were, you know, chasing um, Andrea Evans. And mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so about three days in, we, we were supposed to have six days of this storyline. And about three days in, Paul called me into his office and he said, I have news for you. And I thought, I thought, um, um, oh, oh, dear. What does that mean? You know, and he said, you're not going to die when you fall out of the lighthouse. And I still didn't really get it. <laughs> You know, but that was his way of telling me that they were keeping me on in that role and that the story was, uh, you know, was going to expand. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up having those three wonderful story arcs as that completely kooky. That was wonderful. And it was it was also wonderful because it was at a time where you could just I think they just had a, a contract with ASCAP so that you could use bits of just about any music you wanted. And so I started to kind of find a little song that was kind of like the theme of my scene and, um, and everybody, you know, sort of got on board with it. And, uh, and you, I couldn't, you could never do that now, you know, because, because of rights and so forth. Right. But, uh, but mm-hmm. they were very free and really allowed me to do, you know, pretty much anything I wanted. And so that was lovely to be that free and that appreciated. <laughs> well, we really have to give a shout out to Ursula uh, because it is not every soap opera villain that takes a life in as dramatic and honestly quite soapy a way as did yours by planting a bomb in a wedding cake at <laughs> Tina and Cord and Asa and Renee's double wedding and killing that poor Steve Holden. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Well, she really was a curses foiled again villain because, you know, there was a there was a bomb in the Thanksgiving turkey. She was committed. She was committed in many ways. But yes, yes. <laughs> they were just such wonderful, insane kinds of storylines. But they really wrote a marvelous character for me. And oh, I was going to say that that first storyline with the, the lighthouse and everything was written during the writer's strike. So it was written by not Paul, but one of the other producers. And I sometimes wonder if a story like that would have ever happened if the actual writers were writing, you know, I can't right. know, but it certainly did end up being a wonderful benefit for me. Mm-hmm. So. Um Well, if we have the chronology correct, in 1989, you did a very brief stint on Santa Barbara as Garnet, a prison inmate who was serving time alongside the character of Julia, played by Nancy Lee Gron. So what do you recall about that experience? Well, I mean, I was thrilled to be there because I I knew that um, 
that um, Louise had been a real star of that show. So I'd heard a lot about it, even though I wasn't that familiar with it. It wasn't in the days when you could record it or, or uh, you know, stream it or what have you. Um, but what I really remember was such a shock to me is that they had, um, it wasn't a teleprompter, but they had every line written on large tag board, things like this in big print. And people are kind of running around like this to be wherever you were blocked to be so you could read it off the thing. It, to, it, to me, it was very distracting. And because I was really a theater actress, I, 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 it, it wasn't the thing for me, but clearly that was, I guess, quite a benefit for people who had, you know, a lot to memorize and stuff. So, so, but uh, I was really delighted to be able to be a part of that show, even just for that one day. You know? mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, I never really imagined myself on a soap opera because I, I always thought, well, first of all, I'm too tall. And um, secondly, I, I, I didn't feel like I had, what it takes to be a really like a really sincere um, um, ingenue or leading lady. Um, I, I, I just have always, even though I've done roles like that in the theater, I've always really felt more comfortable as a character woman. And so this little entree with uh, as the world turns and then one life to live and then finally to, to have the chance to play oboe um, was so freeing for me. It gave me, I, I just felt like, oh, I can make something really fun here because I'm being allowed to kind of be myself and not be too, I don't know, too real, maybe real. So, all right. So this is a very interesting, um, interesting. I just find this very fascinating. It was in 1989 that you were cast on All My Children uh, as as Opal, Tad's biological mother. Dorothy Lyman had played the role and had vacated it several years prior. You mm -hmm. did know uh, of Dorothy and you also knew Dorothy a little bit uh, enough to know that she was, you know, very successful in that role. Right. Uh, so tell, tell me about the casting process. I remember you telling me before that you thought it was like daunting to assume the role from Dorothy. Oh God. Oh yes. Um, actually Dorothy, it's kind of funny, was directing me in an off-Broadway play when she said, oh, it's lunch hour. Look, I got to run over to all my children and just audition for something because I need a job that pays. And um she came back and a couple of days later, we learned that she had gotten and it was it was again another one of those things where she was just at a eight days or something to bring Jenny to town. And um, so, you know, she started working on that and uh, had wild success. It's wonderful to think of. And I think she might have been an investor in serious business, the the comedy sketch group that. Um, I produced with one of the other guy's wife. And um, and I feel like there was one other thing that we did together or something. Anyway, so we had our lives were sort of intertwining. We had more in common. We both had French husbands and, uh, you know, they're just interesting similarities, I guess. But um, but yeah, so. Um, oh, you mean how I, oh, so I had moved to California and um, because Paul Rausch sent me out there when he said, we can't write anymore for you. 
uh, the character can't be redeemed, obviously. So, um, so he said, I think you should go out to LA. And I thought, well, and so he set up a bunch of, or somebody, he had somebody over there set up meetings with some agents for me. And I went out there and I met with all the agents and they all said, you know, oh, your reel is great. You're obviously great. You've got a great look. You'll definitely work, but not with us. And um, that's when I started to learn that a lot of people out in L.A. don't get agents for one reason or another. And I thought, well, that's all right. I'll, you know, and I was kind of figuring out the ropes and how I was going to do it and who I could meet and blah, blah, blah. And then my agents called. I'd only been there like two months. And my agents called and said, um, we have an offer for you to play Opal and all my children. And I just I thought, oh, man, I, I just got here. I want to be here. I don't think I should. No, I don't know, you know. And <laughs> And a very wise friend of mine who's also in the business <laughs> said to me, well, you know, Jilly, you don't, yes, I know you want to be in LA and that's great. And, um, you know, LA will still be here. Um, but I mean, let's face it, you, you, you don't have a job and you don't even have an agent who might get you a job. Maybe you should go back and just look upon it as a little two-year prison term. <laughs> <laughs> So I very wisely took her advice and I came back and, but I, I still didn't really, even though, of course, there was a, a, a certain amount of not notoriety and visibility uh, playing Ursula, but I was on the, on the subway um, going down to have my costume fitting and these two black teenage boys came up to me. You're going to be Opal, they're telling me. And I thought, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, I hadn't seen much of the show even. So I, I don't know if I'd ever seen her on the show. So I, I went to Joan Dancheco. I said, can I see some tapes or something? Can I get some sense? She said, oh, no, no. We just want you to play your play it your way. And um, so I, I went in for my costume fitting and I, I just was completely in the dark. And I, I really was pretty freaked out. And and then um, Carol um, gave me the costumes that Charlie and Carol. And then it was like, oh, oh, I see. Bright red spandex pants. <laughs> oh, oh, OK. That gave me some permission to sort of flail around for a while until I could figure out, you know, some kind of a real um, character for her, I guess. Mm -hmm. so. Well, when Opal returned to town, she quickly got to scheming with Palmer to break up Tad and Dixie. So let's talk yeah. first about the fabulous Michael E. Knight, who is now on General Hospital as Martin, but was, of yeah. course, the apple of Opal's eye as Tad. Oh, so God. how would you describe what it was like to play his mom for so many years? Oh, my God. It was just delicious. Just delicious. When, when I, The first time I met Michael... Actually, I came in to sort of visit the set and Katie was very generously showing me around, gave me a tour. And um, Michael looked at me and uh, he said, so, uh, you know, like, uh, are you are you funny? Do you do comedy? And uh, I thought, well, Letterman. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been funny on David Letterman? <laughs> I am. <laughs> Um, but, 
But, you know, like I said, I was so terrified that I just, uh, yeah, I guess. And I really didn't have any confidence. I, I, you know, so anyway, but, um, but, oh God, I came to just, well, anyone who's worked with him just loves him. He is, you know, just really a prince among men, uh, despite his own periods of lack of self-confidence and so forth. I can remember once the two of us going up to the deli on the corner to get sandwiches or something. And the whole way up, he's talking about how, you know, I mean, well, I guess I look all right, but, you know, I'm not a real um, leading man. I don't have that guy. You know, I'm not a Jim DePiva, for example, you know, and I will never, I mean, I'm, and he's just going on and on. I'm saying, what are you talking about? How can you say that? I, I, I couldn't even get it. So that now we're in the deli and this big deli window and a whole group of girls spot him inside the store and they're banging on the window screaming tad 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 and he kind of looks and he waves at him and by the time we leave they've gone there's a high school across the street they've gone to school we come out and he picks up right where he left off about how he wasn't he wasn't handsome <laughs> enough I said wait wait what just happened did that did that not make any impact on you? You know, but, but, oh God, so lovable and so funny, just so brilliantly, spontaneously funny and, uh, and kind and everything. Yeah. I just love him to bits. So I feel the same way. And I wish that he could see himself through our eyes. I know. Uh, I know. So when Opal came to town, uh, the goal was to break up Tan and Dixie. Didn't really pan out. Uh, and her co-conspirator, Palmer and, and Opal, they they kind of accidentally fell in love. And for many years, James Mitchell was your leading man and I know was very dear to you on a personal level as well. Yeah. Tell us, uh, you know, what comes to mind for you when you think about Mr. James Mitchell? Well, first, that day that... Um, Katie walked me around and introduced me to people. He was sitting in the hair and makeup room waiting to get makeup, I guess. And Katie walked me over and introduced us. And, you know, I'm such a nerd, really. And I just looked at him. I said, I'm going to be your new love interest. <laughs> and he just looked at me with it, that deadpan look of his. It was like, Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, just uh, he wasn't intentionally being mean. He was just that's just how he was, you know. And um, so, so that kind of between him and and uh, Michael, I sort of felt like, oh my god, what am I walking into? But uh, but I, I just very quickly came to love and so appreciate him. He was also such a mar marvelous actor and such elegance and charm and a funny sense of humor that was very uh, kind of naughty. And uh, yeah, so yeah, I, I miss him terribly. I stayed with his partner, Albert, the last time I was in L.A. We still are close and and so, yeah. Lovely. Well, someone else you became close with over the years was Susan Lucci, who uh -huh. Erica and Opal also had a very special connection. So tell us about working with Susan and about your relationship with her. Um, well, Susan to me is the uh, epitome of the word grace. And I, um, 
often around her, I, I really did feel like Opal, even when I wasn't playing the part, you know, just because she just had so much grace. I, and sometimes I thought, oh, that's just her persona around the studio. But I remember I was asked to present a word at the a writers, um, the daytime writers awards or something like that. And she and Robert Klein were the hosts. And Robert Klein is a, a great comedian. So they, of course, were charming and wonderful. And at the end of the show, Robert Klein said, we just have one more award to give out. And that is an award that um, all the writers have voted on. And it's about who is, oh, it makes me kind of choke up. Who is the actress that people would most want to write for? And then he did a big thing. And then he said, and the winner is Susan Lucci. Now, she was completely taken off guard. She came up on the stage and she kind of looked around and she didn't know if she was, if this was a joke, if she was the butt of the joke or in on the joke or or whatever. And she just looked at him and she said, is this a joke? And he said, no, no, not at all. This, we are sincere. We are, you know, awarding you with, with this prize. And she accepted whatever it was. If it was a statue, I can't remember. She turned to the audience and immediately, completely extemporaneously delivered the most gracious, um, acceptance speech about writers and the importance of writers and really giving it all back to the people in the room. And I thought, man, if I could do that, I could conquer the world, you know. It, it just really was a was a big impact on me. And uh, I still, I don't see her much anymore, but uh, I still hold her in, in great esteem, you know, so... So, yeah, I was lucky. We used to, between scenes, we we both loved musicals. And so we would sing musical comedy numbers together and stuff like that. And uh, and yet she just always kind of dazzled me on set. And I almost I, I almost felt like it took so long for her to get an Emmy because she was she almost had sort of a Noel Coward style. And we never saw her really suffer too much. And they never wrote the story of my house is burning down, kind of. And it, you kind of need those kind of stories to win the prize. And um, I mean, she had plenty of, of, of dramatic storylines and stuff, but they always wrote her with a little bit of that tongue in cheek that was Erica, that, you know, nothing got her down. And so, um, so then I think she won for that uh, storyline of being, uh, you know, drug addicted. And uh, she won for uh, when Bianca had the eating disorder. Uh -huh. and, and, you know, it was sort of that kind of storyline, I think, that you're speaking yes. to of the stripped down emotional, you know. Yes, yes, that's right. And uh, yeah. Well, Opal was notoriously a flamboyant character. And with that came a lot of <clears throat> flamboyant outfits and a lot of flamboyant hairstyles. And yeah. it might surprise some people listening to find out that you are actually allergic to hairspray. So yeah. how did this work? What did you do? 
Well, for a while, I would just like hold a rag over my face. And then when they were done spraying, I'd run out of the room and, you know, just do the best I could. But then little by little, they, 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 uh, well, it took a long time because those early hairstyles were so elaborate. You, you couldn't have had them without lacquer, you know, they had to be shellacked onto my head. Um, but maybe it's, maybe as I got, um, as the character sort of mellowed a little bit and the hairstyles got a little less extreme, they were more able to do it either without hairspray or by then there were also some products that were a little more natural that weren't so toxic that, uh, uh, you know, would give me a terrible headache. So, <laughs> so yeah, but man, those early hair hairdos, you know, they were pinning a Judith Lieber evening bag in my hair as a decoration. And, uh, <laughs> stuff. So yeah, those were fun days for everybody. But, and the funny thing is that that character really spoke to women, I think, in a really specific way, especially at that time in history. And um, the fact that she was so kind of unedited, it, it she wasn't mean in what she said, but she just often just said things that were like so inappropriate. <laughs> and yet I think it made women feel like, oh, God, if only I could really say what's on my mind and uh, and stuff. And so I found um, that there were fans in the most unlikely places like. Um, we were doing something in Chicago once and I, I walked into that that water tower, that very high end uh, shopping mall that they have there. And um, I walked into Jaeger, which is about as uh, waspy a, a store as you could find. And um, the two women behind the counter, one had her hair in a ponytail sticking out the side of her head. And they said, I can't believe you're walking in here. We're having opal day. We're both wearing our hair in opal styles. And I thought, this is the last place I would ever imagine someone talking about having an opal hairdo day, you know? That's crazy. And, uh, I love yeah. that. Now, yeah. um, you had wanted to move to California, um, obviously at the beginning of your All My Children run. In 2009, the show did move to California. So what was it like for you when production was relocated to the West Coast? Um, well, I'd been off contract for a bit. And so um, I was I was glad, uh, you know, I, I said, you know, if you, you're, I think you need this character to continue the brand out there because there were a number of main people that weren't going. And um, so anyway, uh, I was put back on contract and my daughter was just beginning to uh, look for high schools. She was just graduating from ninth grade, I guess, eighth grade, whatever middle school is. And um, she was very interested in the idea of going out to California and, and uh, you know, sort of exploring what going to school out there would be like. And I, I was excited, too, because I'd always thought I'd love to live in L.A. for a couple of years if I had a job. And so um, so this was our opportunity. And uh, and we went out there and uh, it was very hard at first. But um, but basically. I came to really like it there, even though, you know, we were only really the show only ran for an, a year or maybe a year and a half before we were canceled. And 
but um, I stayed on because she had just started high school and I wasn't going to bring her back to New York then. And it was my chance to sort of actually see if I could do some work there without having to work around a soap schedule, because that makes it very hard to get other kinds of work. So, so, uh, so yeah. I did that. And uh, that was very interesting, too. Well, it was a profoundly sad day in television history when uh, ABC announced the cancellations of both AMC and OLTL. Uh, So what was, you know, getting that news like for you? And what was it like for you to say goodbye to that show and to Opal? It, It was it was it was horrible, you know, as it was for the fans, I think. And I think I we felt like I, I knew the network was in trouble and, you know, they thought these soaps were costing them so much money, which I'm sure they were. And they very brilliantly came up with a replacement show that was oh, like the view only with food. That sounds good. We can do that on a dime, you know. Um, and so it, it was it was just a crushing blow. That's, you know, and everyone was really noble about it in spite of the anger and the the sense of betrayal that we felt. And I mean, the truth is we're all actors. We know that it is rare that you have a run as long as ours had been anyway. And so um, it kind of was what it was. It was two years later that you were part of the short-lived online reboot of All My Children, reprising the role of Opal, of course. Now, Opal's son, Petey, underwent quite the transformation and on the internet version of the show was played by then-soap newcomer Robert Scott Wilson, who went on to play Ben and now Alex on Days. So... Oh, kidding! Yeah. Um, no, that oh, for nine years now, I believe. Oh, uh, gosh. Yeah, so. Last time I was in touch with him... He was in the final runoffs for the role of uh, M- Mr. Gray in 2020. Oh, in Fifty Shades of Gray. Oh, wow. Was, yeah. Okay. And uh, fun fact. Yeah, right. I thought that would be very good casting. <laughs> yeah. So, what do you remember about um, working with him? And just, I will never forget that opening scene, just with him coming through Pine Valley, as it were, <laughs> in the convertible. You know, they were making a splash for sure. Oh my God! And the, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, I knew there was going to be a new PD, but nobody told me anything. And I, I, I got on the set, and I was just, my head was just reeling. And um, of course, of course, you know. Anyway, my first scene with him, I had a tray of brownies and I, I I think I answered the door or maybe the second scene. The first thing I answered the door and there he was. And he's it was just like such a hug. I, I really I really kind of lost my mind. I, I, I was really I, I, I was just like that. And and then the the second scene, which that first scene was very brief, and he just hugged me, oh welcome home or whatever. The second scene, he is in the living room, and I have a tray of brownies, and I walk in, and again, nobody really told me that he was going to have his shirt off. <laughs> I, I, again, I was just, I I, I was just so completely flummoxed and I had to come up and offer him these brownies and 
it was just nutty. And the director, we, we had to stop. And the director said, Jill, Jill, you've just got to stop looking at him like you're perusing the menu. <laughs> I'm doing the best I can, but come on, you know. <laughs> so toughest acting gig in the business. Oh God. Yeah. And of course, he was just the most sweet, kind kid just so great I, I i think i got to meet his mother and uh no he was he was he's really special so i'm glad he's uh where he is now i'll have to tune in <laughs> yes you do see him uh, so you know what stands out to you i guess overall about working on that reboot uh in stanford connecticut other than of course the abs of your on-screen son <laughs> You know, there were a lot of things. We had Matthew Cowles back. Um, you know, Agnes, really, I was a little, I felt like, oh, dear, do we have to start? Do we have to open this with a, a human trafficking story? It was so creepy and everything. But of course, she was so on target because there was so much of that coming out in the in the news at that time. And uh, you know, it, it really it really was kind of amazing that that's what she chose. It was a very bold move in those scenes with her, ta- uh, you know, tied to the bed and stuff. I thought, holy cow, what are we doing here? But um, but it, it made a real impact. And uh, so it was like we, we were on all my children, but but they the, the sensors were gone. And so there was a lot more freedom to uh, sort of consider other kinds of um, stories and language and sex scenes. And it was just, you know, they were pushing the envelope more. And I'm, I'm really sorry that it didn't work out. I think in a way they were kind of ahead of their time. And I think the producers came from the music industry and they they didn't really understand the, the daytime world. And um, and thank God they had Ginger, uh, you know, as a producer. But um, and, you know, we did like 46 episodes in the first two weeks or something. It, it was, you know, only 46. Of, yeah, really. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, it was, it was a great experience and it was sort of a failed experiment. Audiences weren't ready. And I don't think they did. They really didn't understand how to reach the audiences. So they'd even know how to watch. Um, so, so that was, that was too bad, but but it was a great try. Yeah, we agree. We've always said it just came too soon. If it happened today, even a few years yeah. ago, it would have been so much more successful. And it just was a matter of timing. As you said earlier, that everything is about timing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, who are you still in touch with from All My Children? Well, Judy Bly Wilson, our casting director, who went on to YNR, and I are driving down to Cape May next Wednesday to see Katie McLean do Shirley Valentine. And that's a one woman show. I'm very excited for her. We've been writing back and forth because I did a one woman show a few years ago now and is a very specific kind of experience, a very specific kind of terror, really, is what it is. <laughs> but, uh, 
But so I'm very much looking forward to seeing her. And um, I guess I see more Lorraine Broderick and uh, Ginger and um, uh, people like that. Susan came into town the last time at Julia Barr uh, that we get together and have dinner every few months. But that was before the pandemic. So uh, we haven't gotten together since then. But uh, I guess those are the people I'm most regularly in touch with, you know, but I love seeing anybody. I ran into Alicia Minshew and her adorable husband and daughter, Willa, who was like 14 or something and it, in the park. And it just was astounding, you know, and of course she was stunningly beautiful and, and Alicia was, uh, Oh, it was just great to see. And we we said, we're going to get together. We're going to get together next week. But when you have a 15-year-old, oh, come on, get real. <laughs> you know, <laughs> your life is pretty much spoken for. So, <laughs> and, and they added a French bulldog into the mix. Oh, they did? Yes. Oh, God. For, I forget wonder. about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, well, you know, one thing that we have yet to touch on, although we don't, talked about uh, the films that you did when you were in France at the very beginning of your career is the fact that you have kind of an impressive film resume as well and have worked with amazing acclaimed directors like Ridley Scott and White Squall, Martin Scorsese and Shutter Island. What yeah. is your Martin Scorsese story that you tell people? Like, what are you dying on out on about having worked with Martin Scorsese? Well, it's a story I've actually written and Leslie Stahl had an online magazine and published it um, because I, I I had just come home or I was at a friend's house or something and my phone rang after work one day and um, it was my agent. And he said, um, you know, we have an offer for you. Uh, it's, it's for a, a Scorsese picture. I said, really? I, I couldn't imagine. And he said, yeah, yeah. He said, it's just a small part. I mean, there aren't any words. There's, there's no language or anything. There's no dialogue. But it, it is with DiCaprio. And um, so we wanted to, you know, let you know. I mean, if you if you don't want to do it, we'll get you out of it. Don't worry about it. And I said, well, why wouldn't I want to be in a movie with, uh, you know, Scorsese and DiCaprio? He said, well, you know, just read the script and then we'll talk after. And it was a Friday afternoon. I came home and I read the script. And the script was so compelling that I, I read all the way through it. And I got to the end and I thought, wait, where's my part? And <laughs> So I went back to the beginning and, you know, fairly early on, there is a description of the toothless old hairless hag who has a scar, a purple scar across her neck where she has been, neck has been slashed or something like that. The manacled woman. And I, 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 I was just like this. I, 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 the other version of when I first uh, saw Rob on set, you know, just. Uh, how, uh, oh, because my agent had said they tried to cast it locally. They're shooting up in Boston. They tried to cast it locally. But then Scorsese finally said, oh, let's spend the money and bring up that woman from New York. So this is in my mind. I read the script and realize what a character only the woman from New York could do. And I'm thinking, Jesus, I mean, 
I know I'm a little older now, but I, I don't look that bad. Come on. And I, I just was, I just really, my head was spinning all weekend and I couldn't reach my agent. And I, I just, I, I just didn't know how to, but I also being an actor knew that, yes, I was going to take the job. You know? <laughs> so I figured, well, yeah, I mean, okay, so I'll be bald and uh, have no teeth and what have you, but that's okay because no one will recognize me, so I can do that part. Well, of course, that didn't turn out to be true either. So, um, but anyway, it was uh, it was an amazing experience. Even though people say, "What was DiCaprio like?" I say, "I never saw him. He never <laughs> showed his face the whole time I was there." So. I remember, though, being in a movie theater the first time I saw that trailer and like there there you were. I mean, it it was, you know, they they got their money's worth. (laughs) Well, I I knew you personally. (laughs) That's how I could tell. Because what? Because I knew you personally. I knew your eyes. Oh, I see. Well, you know, uh, Kelly Ripa was on her show. And uh, she made some remark about something or they made some joke about that scary lady in the beginning of Scorsese's new movie, at which point, I guess somebody, you know, sent her a note during the show to say that scary lady's Jill Larson, to which she kind of flipped out. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then the next day she was so sweet, I guess on 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 the internet or somehow anyway she got modeling pictures or pictures of me as opal or something and then the picture of the uh, scorsese film and um so that was very sweet but she really didn't realize it was me so that was nice that's awesome (laughs) well in recent years you've appeared in multiple horror films and you have a new film the revenge thriller the wrath of becky which was just released um and you play the mother of sean william scott perhaps best known for the american pie movies but tell Mm -hmm. us about the wrath of becky um well, I love the script of The Wrath of Becky. Um, the It was written by a, a couple. Uh, and the wife uh, said to me, I said, you know, I, I just love the script. She said, yeah, it's just a little film about female rage. <laughs> and I said, exactly. <laughs> so Becky is a 16-year-old. I play the founder of a white supremacist terrorist group. And uh, uh, um, Sean is my son, and um, I am very excited. I'm going to see it tomorrow night. I didn't know it was going to be. It's an indie, but it's in um, it's theatrical release, and uh, it's at the AMC Theater, as at Times Square and Union Square. So I'm excited to go see it tomorrow. And I just hope, you know, you never know when you work on something. It takes so many pe- pieces. And so many people coming together in just the right way. And there's so many places where it can go wrong. But um, I know they got a very big reception at uh, South by Southwest. And if it weren't good enough, we wouldn't be seeing it at AMC theaters. So so I I have, you know, I just have a couple of really great scenes. But um, but uh, I'm very excited to see it. So (laughs) really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, so, yeah, Lulu Wilson, who plays Becky, she this is a sequel to an earlier version that was produced and written by other people. So um, but she's marvelous. And so so we'll see. But, 
Well, Jill, it's very hard to believe that it has been 10 years since we last saw you as Opal and even yeah. crazier, some 37 years since you first walked onto that world turn set, got that check, got that cabin, yeah. cottage. Uh, can you, you know, sum up what, what your years in daytime television mean to you as you like look back on the totality of your acting career? Um, they mean so much. And, and I will say that again, when I started in daytime, I really, I didn't know much about it. I was really a theater actress. Um, I hadn't really followed the soaps. Um, I, I, I really didn't know much about it. And, um, the first two jobs I had were really hard, really hard because I was just learning what it takes to make a soap opera. And I very quickly came to have deep, deep respect. I still feel like it's something of a miracle that so much material is produced in such a short time and how the quality of much of the acting is very high and much of the writing is wonderful. But even more than those things is, um, well, two things. One, I, I... I think the networks always kind of denigrated the form. And I think that was because it was a form for women. And, uh, you know, so women's, you know, women's content really did not garner any respect in the, among the business world, despite the fact that, you know, these shows were bringing in more money than any other part of the network and paying for the news department and everything else. So um, there was that element. And then the other side is the machine of what goes on to make one of those shows. So I, had, I have tremendous respect for it all um, and all the people who had to work so hard. And, and then I see the tremendous value and meaning and, and, and power and comfort that those shows have brought to millions of people over the years. And I feel so honored to have been able to participate in a medium such as this, where people say to me, I watched your show with my mother and my grandmother every day. And I think, my God, what family connections. They have their own sort of language through watching or their familiarity with the, these various shows. And and it, it's sort of like um, men with sports, you know. Oh, how did so-and-so do in the Yankees last week or whatever? It's another kind of vocabulary. And uh, I think it's really necessary, really valuable. And, of course, we're seeing more and more soaps in nighttime, you know. And um, so... So I think that is that is testimony to the fact that the form still has great value. And so, yeah. And, and of course, I mean, for me also, it, it changed my whole life, uh, as it does for most soap actors who end up having a real career. Um, I, I don't think I ever would have had the courage to uh, become a mother if I hadn't known that I had the financial stability underneath me to be able to do that as a single woman. And um, so, of course, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I, over the course of my, uh, of my time on All My Children, wrote to Agnes to thank her because I, 
I really didn't grasp the notion of all my children until until I was in it for a while and until be, I became a mother and, and really experienced what that is and what Agnes taught all of us about humanity and respect and love and family and all of that. You know. So so that's what it means to me. <laughs> I love all of that. Well, we thank yeah. you so much for all your time today and for sharing all your stories and memories and Hope to see you again soon. Well, thank you. This has been so fun to go down this, you know, trip down memory lane and to sort of um, bring back some of those times that we all loved and we were all brought together because of the shows. So absolutely. And absolutely. Thank goodness there are still four left and they are seem to be, you know, going strong. And uh, so I'm glad that the, the form, the medium is still alive. So, so anyway. are we. Thank you so much, Jill. So great to see you. Thank you. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Jill Larson for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast. Podcast.